0: If my um, husband at the time had said, I'm going to move to run, um, that it wouldn't be a question of him leaving his children. That's what they said. Um, it just wouldn't have been. Uh, my daughter's 18. She's getting to go to state. And she said that they know I was an adult. And, um, you know, I want to spend time with her. But I also want to show my daughters that women should be involved in politics. Um, I realized that I had to step up. And, and yet. You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider here with Will Doran and Andy Spee of the News and Observer. And we've had a quiet couple weeks in North Carolina politics with the legislature out of town, but we're slowly ramping up towards uh, the November elections and all the uh, festivities that come along with that. So we'll uh, talk about some of the campaign finance issues um, as well as some other happenings in and around uh, North Carolina politics in the wake of the legislative session uh, this last couple of weeks in this month of July. Uh, so let's start out on the campaign finance front. Uh, we're starting to get in uh, second quarter campaign finance reports from both the political parties and the individual uh, campaigns as far as how much they're managing to raise uh, thus far. Uh, Andy, you've been going through uh, tons and tons of uh, these reports to try to see who's ahead and uh, what are you finding?
1: Uh, that's right. The, well, the big news, the headline this week was that Democrats raised a record $5.8 million uh, dollars, uh, after quarter two, halfway through the year, which is more than they've ever had for a midterm election. Um, elsewhere, uh, and so the Democrats, uh, this is news, new for them because they've rarely had a sitting governor like Roy Cooper to work with them and help fundraise and go and hold events and things like this. Um, so they have it in one big pot. Uh, the Republican Party only has about 1.3 million on hand. However, uh, legislative leaders like uh, Phil Berger and Tim Moore are expected to sort of carry the rest of the Republican Party through their own respective uh, campaign finance committees. Berger has 1.6 million. That's more than the the party has. Um, So, uh, the reports are still trickling in, but there are several races where Democrats have outraised Republican incumbents uh, by a lot. Uh, for, for instance, uh, Sam Searcy has about, oh gosh, $300,000 more than Tamara Behringer over in um, Kerry. I forget what district number that is, but uh, he's outraised her. He loaned himself a lot of money uh, in that case, too. But then there's Mac Paul in Raleigh. He's a Democrat running against Johnny Mac Alexander, who's seen as a more moderate uh, Republican. Mac Paul has $300,000 on hand, and Johnny Mac Alexander only has uh, 36000 And so those are expected uh, to be tight races. You know, that's, these urban areas are, or should I say suburban, uh, are where Republicans are most vulnerable, and it seems they're already falling behind. Uh, at least in those cases, um, people like Chris Malone seems to be, uh, well, there's some races where we're waiting for uh, reports to come in. Malone has uh, $63,000 on hand. He's from Wake Forest. Terrence Everett, his opponent, his Democratic opponent, his uh, file isn't uploaded yet. So there's a lot uh, that still needs to be combed through, um, but Uh, it seems like Democrats have reasons to be optimistic. Uh, even on the coast, we have people like Bobby Hannig. He's a Republican. He beat Beverly Boswell. Uh, he has, he is $7,000 in debt after his race against her. And after a quarter two, whereas his democratic opponent Tess judge has $77,000. So, um, you know, they're hoping to break the supermajority, the Democrats are, and there are several races where they're way ahead already, and that's good news for them.
2: And I believe the Democrats need six seats to flip in the in the House, right?
1: No, six in the Senate, four in the House.
2: Okay, gotcha. So with uh, – and, you know, obviously a lot of the seats aren't going to be particularly competitive. There's probably only going to be a, a handful, maybe a dozen or so, that are competitive. But uh, so th- those will be the ones to – to really keep an eye on?
1: The, the Republican who's doing the best so far, I would say, is Nelson Dollar. He has $200,000. He's from Kerry. He's a key budget writer for the Republicans. He has $200,000, and his opponent, Julie von Hafen, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, she has $86,000. So he has a, a, a lot more than she does, although she raised more than him in quarter two. She raised uh, seventy grand, whereas he raised uh, $38,000 but then again, you know, he's been there a long time. He has money left over. He didn't need to raise as much. Yeah, and
0: she had gotten, I think, a late start because um, the districts were kind of uh, in flux at the last minute, and eventually they were changed in a way that uh, the people who initially thought they were gonna run against uh, him, and I think including uh, one of the county commissioners, uh, ended up not being in the district, so they had to find another candidate who could uh, jump in there and and take on Nelson Dollar, so that's sort of at play there. But yeah, it is interesting overall. Typically, you see incumbents do better in fundraising just because they're able to access some of the PAC money uh, from the the various groups that are trying to uh, gain some influence around the legislature. Um, And I think with a lot of the grassroots fundraising mechanisms we've seen uh, from some of the the Democrats this year, that uh, paradigm seems to be shifting a little bit. Um, It'll be interesting what the picture looks like when all of the reports are in. We're still waiting on some, and um, we may find some other races where Republicans are ahead, uh, and, of course, all of this discounts the uh, role of uh, any dark money groups that jump into these races. Um, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot for uh, some group that uh, is set up so that they don't have to disclose their finances to raise a ton of money and drop some ads that either um, sort of target specific races or, or just sort of overall create some sort of message that goes statewide about what a particular party uh has accomplished or not accomplished so we'll see if any of that happens as we get uh, closer to the election
2: yeah the, we've we're already seeing some uh some outside spending ads i saw an ad the other day from the ncae the teachers group against nelson dollar um, so even though that's not something that's going to show up in his opponents fundraising numbers that's still something that's helping out the the democrats in that race yep um and uh we're also seeing
0: a fair amount of activity on the campaign finance front um, we saw some complaints this week uh, about different uh, aspects of uh, people's campaign disclosures. Um, I'm working on a story now about uh, Linda Coleman's campaign uh, apparently has not filed a federal uh, disclosure required of uh, candidates for Congress. Uh, looks like she's the only congressional candidate so far uh, who ha- hasn't yet done so. Um, and we'll see how that uh, shakes out. Have yet to hear back from her campaign as to whether they are filing the form, but the Wake County GOP is... Uh, Highlighting this is a sign that uh, her campaign uh, isn't uh, being as, as transparent as uh, they think she should be. Uh, we also had uh, complaints this week uh, about uh, this uh, political action committee called Our Shot, which has some ties to uh, State Representative Greg Meyer. It's been rec- helping uh, recruit and um, back some uh, Democratic candidates for uh, the, I think mostly the House. Um, and uh, the complaint from the NCGOP, Uh, references a contribution of a few thousand dollars that they made to Daryl Moss, who's a Democrat, uh, running for a house seat up in Grandel County. Um, And that uh, donation was dated during the legislative session, which is something that typically uh, different types of political action committees are not supposed to be doing during session. Um, It's a law that uh, I think was sort of created to make sure that if you're a Political action committee for a drug company, and there's a bill that the drug company wants. You're not handing out checks the day of the vote or something uh, to people's campaigns. Um, so, the issue here is whether our uh, shot has um, immunity from that because they don't do any lobbying, they're not tied to a group that does lobbying. Uh, so, that's sort of their defense. Uh, the NCGOP is saying because they're a political action committee, uh, they should have to forfeit those donations. Uh, the same committee, our shot, has made. Uh, contributions to several other uh, Democratic campaigns on the same day. Uh, those were not mentioned in the GOP's initial complaint. Uh, hard to tell if they're filing others or if that was uh, just the one that they wanted to to use as an example. Uh, while the GOP is making a big to-do of that, uh, we also had um, this issue with a, uh, a very similar case involving the PAC for the pharmaceutical company Pfizer, Um that has been investigated by the State Board of Elections. And as of, I think, April or May, uh, they determined that um, well over 30 or so uh, campaigns had received illegal contributions from Pfizer's PAC um, and that all those committees had to forfeit the donations, which basically means they write a check for the amount of the donation to the forfeiture fund, which goes to schools. Uh, the original um, donor of the money also has to pay a, f- a fine equal to the money they were giving out. Um, And uh, in this case, Pfizer had given illegal contributions to pretty much everybody important. Uh, Attorney General Josh Stein's campaign, Governor Roy Cooper's campaign, uh, the legislative leaders uh, of both parties, uh, Dan Blue and Aaron Jackson on the Democratic side, uh, Phil Berger and Tim Moore on the Republican side. Um, Most of those have uh, forfeitures and fines have now been paid. Uh, There are a few that haven't. I think uh, six or seven of them. Uh, in my review of it for the Friday's Insider, uh, had still not listed as having uh, paid back the money, including Dan Blue's campaign. Uh, and they had a 30-day deadline to do it that passed about 30 days ago. So uh, we'll see if there's any penalties uh, levied for the campaigns that seem to have uh, not been paying a whole lot of attention to this uh, forfeiture letter that they got telling them to uh, write a check to the schools uh, for the amount of the Pfizer contribution uh, no word from the NCGOP whether they're going to file further complaints about that issue since it seems to be a topic that they're very concerned about uh, with respect to the uh, Our shot Political Action Committee. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Um, I think if we had any other uh, election-related developments, uh, I guess early voting has uh, been the big issue the last couple weeks. Uh, we saw the Uh, law that uh, went into effect changing early voting rules, and so counties are trying to figure out how to best to comply with that. Uh, The issue here in Wake County this week was over whether there should be a site at uh, NC State. Uh, The Democrats on the county board of elections thought there should. Uh, The Republicans uh, thought the site should be more spread out uh, geographically around the county so that some of the Uh, Further from Raleigh, locations will have access to early voting, which, of course, is going to be a little bit more costly to add extra sites because under the new law, they all have to be open uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays um, and then can set slightly different hours for for weekend days. Um, That's uh, according to a story that we had in The Insider from uh, correspondent Jared Weber this week. Um, A lot of counties are really struggling with this and trying to figure out uh, within the budgets that they don't really have the ability to change now for early voting. How many sites can they have in several counties uh, told our reporter that uh, they were going to have go from having four or five sites spread across the county in in past uh, midterm election cycles to perhaps just having one or two sites uh, centrally located and and open for the uh, expansive number of hours. Also some concerns I think we heard of uh, counties saying that they... They didn't see value in opening at 7 in the morning because historically they haven't had many early voters that for whatever reason wanted to come in before work and come in before uh, 10 or so. So when they had more flexibility about their hours, uh, they were more uh, oriented towards midday, late afternoon and sort of several hour windows as opposed to uh, opening the sites all day long. So that's uh, something that uh, they're grappling with. Uh, Governor Cooper did sign at the beginning of this week uh bill uh tweaking the original early voting changes um, restoring the final saturday of early voting which was something democrats were very concerned about they said that uh it was going to uh disproportionately uh, affect african american voters who have uh used that day in, in pretty significant numbers in past cycles uh so he signed that uh saturday is now back but just for 2018 um, we'll have to see uh if that stays the case going into 2019 2020 elections or whether uh, the statute that says uh, no Saturday before the election voting uh, will, will stay in place for that. Um, so that sort of covers the, I think the election waterfront, unless there are any other election-related issues we didn't touch
2: on. Well, we also had the, uh, the ruling that uh, Jen Mangrum, who's the Democrat uh, from the Greensboro area who's running against uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger, uh, won her appeal. Uh, she had had her residency challenged um and uh won that at the the state board of because yeah, she had and moved i guess she had been in Philberger's district before it was
0: redrawn and lived in greensboro um and then it was redrawn not to include her portion of greensboro so she rented a place in reedsville um and is uh, listing that as her residence but there were some folks who were skeptical that she'd actually moved there um and from from what i heard of this hearing it involved some very personal questions about where where do you keep your clothes do you keep any clothes in greensboro where do your pets live um and and the end result was a uh strictly i think party line vote both at the uh the county level in uh rockingham county where this district is located they ruled i think along party lines uh to reject her candidacy initially um with republicans saying they don't think she actually lives there democrats saying yes she does Uh, And then it goes to the state board where, uh, because there's the ninth member who is uh, an unaffiliated member, uh, Damon Sercosta, who's uh, associated with some uh, liberal causes, even though he's not a registered Democrat. Uh, So it sort of advantages the left-leaning members uh, as a majority on the state board. So they voted again along party lines uh, with uh, the unaffiliated member voting in support of uh, keeping her on the ballot so she'll get to stay on the ballot unless there's uh, some sort of additional appeals to courts. I don't know if that's something you can... Uh, kick up to the next level if you want to keep fighting it or whether uh, the the people trying to get her off the ballot will uh, give it up and uh, allow her to uh, run in this, I I think, a fairly far right-leaning district. Uh, It's not one of the more competitive ones for Democrats.
2: Yeah, Um, and she's made a point of uh, being very open about how she was actually a lifelong Republican up until 2017 and then basically switched to the Democratic Party um, because of... Uh, the election of president trump and some other reasons so she's definitely positioning herself as someone who's you know very in the middle moderate i don't know uh i haven't seen the polling i don't know how close uh she thinks she might be yeah i saw
0: someone's pointing out that trump had carried that district by like 20 or 30 points so it's a Certainly be an uphill battle for her to uh, to win that. And, you know, right, and her
2: she's her. not, yeah, she's not running against just any politician. She's running against, you know, the, the Senate leader, one of the most powerful Republicans in the state. Yeah. Um, and who's raised a ton of money. Um, right, I guess most I, of which
0: will probably be parceled out to the more vulnerable candidates, but I'm sure he'll he'll spend money on himself if he needs to, to uh, to win it.
1: Well, I yeah. think that's the most important takeaway when you say is that not that you know, she might beat him, which I, I don't know how many people expect that. It's that This forces him to spend some of that money in his own district.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, And and time, too. You know, he can't be going around the state all the time campaigning for other people. He'll have to be home campaigning as well.
0: All right. Uh, I think it covers the election situation as as it stands here in the middle of July. Uh, I did want to touch briefly, Will, on a couple of things you wrote uh, this week about the Department of Public Safety. You had a story about... Uh, the uh, prison system and some of the concerns over raises uh, being paid in there. So what, what, what's the deal there as far as the complaints that we're hearing from the prison system?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've written a handful of stories about issues within Department of Public Safety and the prison system. Um, there's... A lot <laughs> to be written about. Um, there are a handful of lawsuits currently going on uh, against the department, uh, sometimes against individual prisons or individual people sometimes against the department as a whole. Uh, a really big one is that uh, th- these allegations that the the management of dps under uh, in the final years of the Macquarie administration essentially colluded to stop a bunch of rank and file prison employees from getting the raises that the legislature had parceled out for them. Uh, In 2015, uh, both McCrory's administration and the legislature agreed that uh, prison employees were paid too little and deserved raises. Um, And then this, so they set aside some money and then this lawsuit says that actually what happened was the management went around and started giving people all of this kind of trumped up uh, disciplinary action to stop them from getting raises. Um, So I've been writing about that, Uh, been following some some loose ends on that, and this week, and if any listeners have any other tips they want to send my way on that, I always appreciate it. Um, We also had, um, uh, on Thursday, Thursday evening really, um, the uh, Trump administration Department of Justice announced that it had reached a settlement with the state over uh, the mishandling of prescription pills and other controlled substances at Central Prison which is where uh, death row is here in North Carolina, and also uh, the, the women's prison that's next door to Central Prison. Um, and basically for three years, essentially, from 2014 through 2016, on dozens of occasions, the people who work at that prison were doing something to take the pills, the prescription pills, out of you know, the, the area where they're supposed to be kept secure, And they did something with them, but then they didn't ever document what they did. You know, if you give prisoners pills, you're supposed to, you know, write down, I gave, you know, this person this many pills at this time or whatever so that, you know, people can't come in and, you know, try and get extra pills because, you know, a lot of people in prison are there because they had substance abuse issues. So, you know, we want to not be furthering that. Um, But dozens of occasions this didn't happen, and the feds say that they – couldn't ever find any solid evidence that this was just the prison guards uh, stealing these pills for themselves or maybe taking them to illicitly sell to other inmates or any, any sort of crime. There are no charges associated with this, but they also noted that they couldn't really find any evidence because there's no paperwork of where it went, um, and the state, um, as you might imagine, was very interested in just kind of nipping this investigation in the bud, and so we agreed to pay a $200,000 fine to end it um, instead of challenging it, when there could have been a lot more discovery going on, and uh, we actually could have ended up paying a much larger fine, about nine hundred thousand dollars. But uh, just a good reminder that you know whenever state employees uh, screw up on the job and you know do something they're not supposed to do, even if it seems kind of minor, like you know not filling out paperwork, uh, it's still us taxpayers who are on the hook. And in in this case, you know. poorer for it.
0: Yeah, and DPS, just in general, I think this is not necessarily specific to the the Cooper administration by any stretch. It just seems to always be the most troubled agency uh, in in state government. I mean, you've got those issues. You've got the issue with their Emergency Management Division over Hurricane Matthew recovery, which I think was, was in the news this week with another story about the slow response and some deadlines being missed on that front. Um, so there's, it seems like there's always some sort of scandal involving this group. So. And
2: we're now approaching almost two years since Hurricane Matthew, I believe, and yeah. still the recovery funds are just kind of trickling in. And um, uh, But, yeah, and well, on that, uh, you know, I should note with this, this prison thing, uh, Cooper's DPS secretary, Eric Hooks, uh, came out with a statement after I called them about this and said, oh, well, you know, this was all before my time and, you know, it was, it was screwed up basically under the McCoy administration and now I am going in and doing all these things to fix it, implement better training, better oversight, things like that. So they're trying to get out in front of it. Uh, we'll see, uh, you know, if that actually works. Maybe there are more federal audits coming down the pipeline, uh, you know, into more recent things that will prove just as damaging but we'll see
0: yeah we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that thanks for that will and we'll be back in just a moment with uh, everybody's favorite segment headliner of the week stay with us
1: melissa
2: from michigan i work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school but i still can't afford to put food on our table
0: daniel from california Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals.
2: Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner 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 of the week. 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 Headliner of the week.
0: And welcome back to Domecast. It is indeed time for Headliner of the Week, the segment where we ask our panelists uh, to name the top headline uh, or headliner of the past week. And then we'll decide uh, who wins the coveted distinction this week. So let's start off with
1: Andy Spey. Andy, who's your headline of the Week? I'm going to go with the Army. That's right. The 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 entire Army. The entire Army. No, we, uh, North Carolina was in the, and here's why. And it has to do with campaigning. Uh, North Carolina has been in the running for Apple, Amazon, and this Army Futures Training Center. And so uh, we were a finalist with Austin and uh, one other city for this Army this Army Futures Training Center. And this week we lost out. And it's got me wondering, what happens? There's These announcements with Apple and Amazon may also come before the November elections. And how is that going to be used on the campaign trail? What if we don't get the Army, or Amazon, or Apple—you got those three A's—that would they would fit perfectly in some sort of campaign headline um, or campaign ad. And but if we do land one of them, who's going to get the credit? Will Republicans get the credit if we get Apple? Will Cooper get the credit? I I say that all this to say uh, there are uh, things that are going to happen to influence this election that haven't happened yet, and I'm. Very interested to see just how it plays out. Yeah, we should hear announcement
0: all all of these before November. And I I know for a while there were uh, certain news outlets that were reporting based on anonymous sourcing that Apple was imminently making an announcement here. The reporting I've seen over the last week, again, finding anonymous sources seems to suggest that it's not necessarily a done deal. So uh, that could be something that that goes to another city. Uh, And I think Amazon, um, you know, is – Got Raleigh on its short list, but there's a lot of other cities to compete with. um, You know, we certainly can't compete with certain other cities in terms of public transportation. So that's uh, entirely possible that goes somewhere else. Um, And then, yeah, who who gets the blame? Is it the Republicans for their tax policies, uh, or is it uh, Cooper for the fact that he's the running the Department of Commerce and Incentives and uh, all the you know on the ground uh, recruiting efforts, uh, and, and whether voters blame any of them for uh, for that, or whether they see a strong economy even despite of those. Right,
1: exactly. All right,
0: so uh, Army's in the hat for uh, headliner of the week. Uh, we'll go next to Will Doran, Will, who's your headliner? Uh,
2: my headliner is Tom Ellis. He is a longtime uh, Republican operative here in North Carolina uh, who just passed away. Um, he was 97, and uh, he's not a name that a lot of people outside of You know, very insidery political circles are going to recognize. But he uh, was one of the probably most influential uh, conservatives in the state uh, throughout the the late '70s, the '80s, into the '90s. He ran a lot of Jesse Helms campaigns, a lot of campaigns for other people. He uh, had a bunch of outside groups. uh, Kind of, you know, before super PACs were a big thing that everyone knew about. You know, he was kind of one of the, the first to, to really get into that and, uh, really worked with this, this whole generation of, uh, up and coming conservatives in, in the state. Re- I mean, really, you know, ev- almost everyone who's a, a major conservative politician or operative in North Carolina was somehow associated with Jesse Helms over his very, very long career in Congress. Um, but he was, uh, Ellis was the guy who got him to Congress in the first place. Uh, he beat, uh, uh, Nick Galfanakis, who is the uncle of Zach uh for a seat in Congress in the 70s and stayed there for many decades afterwards. Yeah, so. and I
0: saw on Twitter last night Dallas Woodhouse of the N C G O P was actually crediting Ellis with uh, having had a pretty big role in uh, organizing uh, Reagan's 76 campaign in North Carolina, which Dallas says uh, had a big uh, thing to do with uh, the fact that uh reagan was able to carry north carolina or uh succeed in, in north carolina on, on some level in, in 1980 and ultimately become president so uh sort of the uh, definitely a key man behind the uh curtain sort of figure for uh jesse helms and, and a lot of other republicans in decades past but uh made it all the way to to 97 uh, before uh, passing away this week all right so the, we've got uh, we got the army and we've got a uh, tom ellis in the hat and uh As important as the Army is, I hate to uh, give uh, any sort of award to an entity that uh, chooses to snub our fair state. So uh, I think uh, this week, uh, just given the role of uh, key figures who you never hear about um, in uh, state politics through the years, through the decades, uh, I think Tom Ellis uh, uh, deserves the the mantle of headliner of the week uh, this week upon his passing. So uh, we'll we'll give it to that and uh, give it to Will. All right, uh, I think that covers it for this week's uh, edition of Domecast. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider. We will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of
2: The News and Observer and The Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at NewsObserver.com.
0: The Insider is found online at NCInsider.com.